Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Stacey Akins and today we are doing a podcast for the history, um, the Society for the History of Children and Youth. And the book that we're presenting today is The Persistence of Slavery, an Economic History of Child Trafficking in Nigeria, written by Robin uh, Chap Delane. And so I would like to introduce her today. Um, we're excited to be here today. And she is a professor of history, at, um, associate professor of history at Duquesne University. Um, my name is Stacey Akins. I'm a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University uh, here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my um, interests are, go right along with uh, children and youth history. Um, I'm interested in the um, history of black homeschooling. So it intersects with the history of education, but it has a lot to do with uh, social movements and uh, childhood history of being outside of the institution of uh, education or schooling. Um, so, uh, hi, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you so much for engaging with my book. Thank you for having me. So we'll jump right on in to some questions. And first of all, I'd just like to say I love this book. Um, it's very uh, interesting, timely, uh, and almost timeless because as, as the title says, it's a persistent. It's been going on, just change over time. Um, so first, I'd just like to ask some background questions like, you know, when you were doing your research for this book, what was the political environment like in Nigeria? That is an interesting question. When I went um, to Nigeria for the first time, it was at the end, I believe, of 2011 and the beginning of 2012. I was in Ibadan doing research at the university archives there and I had planned to travel to the southeast um, to conduct my oral interviews about the 1929 women's war there. Um, right towards the end of my research tenure at Ibadan, there was, and this was, you know, the holiday time, people were leaving the urban areas to visit home to the villages, um, and often they would take taxis or pay somebody else buses or whatever um, to take them to the villages but during that time when everybody everybody was back at their home villages president jonathan goodluck rescinded the oil subsidies and mm. if nigerians were afforded anything by the government it was the oil subsidies um, and i believe that the oil prices the gas prices went up <clears throat> rather I want to say it was like two or 300% at that time, which meant that everybody's travel back to the cities went up, uh, uh, you know, in, in great, a, a great amount. 
So what ended up happening was people in the cities that remained began a protest. Um, they threatened to shut the cities down. They threatened to shut the roads down. Um, and in fact, at that moment when the protest, I don't know um, if the listeners would remember, but you know, individuals, they were burning tires on the, on the roadways. They were preventing people from traveling um, from place to place in order to get the government's attention. And Rutgers is my PhD home. Um, the institutional uh, you know, administration there told me to come home and I had to fly home within 24 hours because they were threatening to shut down the airport, which they did right after. Um, and of course I had young children. I was supposed to teach in the spring. I didn't know how long that you know, the entire um, country might, or at least the, the Southern region would be shut down. So for me, it was, it was disjointing because I was so excited to do the interviews and I wasn't able to do them at the time, but I think it was actually in hindsight an, an important lesson to learn about how connected, of course, some of these small offerings, right, these small subsidies that are um, uh, afforded to Nigerians, um, how important they are. And then when you take them away, the kind of uprising that happens, right, and that's exactly what I was going right. to study. Um, so it, it was a bit of a challenge, but it was exactly the kind of experience, experience perhaps that I needed to understand that which I was studying about 1929. Excellent. So you were studying an uprising and an uprising happened in an urban space as well. Mm -hmm. So what, um, what research, um, what resources did you use to get your materials since you had to fly back and then the country kind of shut down its, you know, outward facing, um, how did you get your materials? Sure. So one of the first things I did before I ever went is I read about a thousand pages of testimony after the war, um, that were produced after the war. So in 1930, when the British decided to hold hearings about why the women's war occurred, who was involved, what was at stake. And those documents kind of clued me into the kinds of materials I should look for in the colonial archive. Um, so I was looking for treasury papers. I was looking for colonial administrator letters um formal documents um letters and correspondence to the district officers as well as native court records um, that was produced by indigenous populations frequenting the native courts of course i had anthropology anthropological reports um certain you know missionary reports and and personal documents as well as various forms of educators um, that were stationed at missionary or colonial schools that ended up being there um, in a late, the later period. Um, so beyond that, there were slave trader reports, there were um, agriculture and other kind of trade documents that I had access to. And all of that becomes rele relevant when I do my more in-depth economic analysis of how this impacted children and their labor. Um, but there's just a plethora of information. 
um, that I used. And at the end of the day, I had to employ individuals to do the interviews on my behalf. Um, and so they were the last component, um, those interviews to plug into what I had learned from the other materials. Excellent. And speaking of all the resource materials, you had um, ledgers and, and agricultural receipts, probably. And, and that's used with the slavery uh, in the Americas, you know, to, to track it and to see what was going on as far as labor and, and things like that. So your framework is a, a social economy of children. So for our listeners, kind of explain that because I found that absolutely fascinating um, because you're focusing on something that with all these dimensions of uh, the history of slavery uh, gets, you know, kind of bypassed. So explain your framework. Right. So I argue in the book that in order to understand what's happening at the end of the 1920s into the 1930s, um, you have to analyze the moment by um, using this social economy framework theory. And I argue that in part, in order to understand a local, national, or global economy, you have to, un you have to understand children's productive and reproductive engagement in that economy. In addition to that, I argue that children are vehicles through which wealth is transferred, even if temporarily. Um, and then finally, children are part and parcel to parents' lives, their community lives. They're very important. And just because I speak of them as economic components of society, it does not detract from their social importance in their familial spaces. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. Yes. This. I. I agree with that. I. I. I was. Like I said, it was stated from the beginning. It captivated me because even in my studies, um, when you talk about the persistence of slavery, and you also kind of make an argument that like this system that happened when uh, local labor kind of transferred over to colonial uh, labor, the economy, that uh, it, it started building a modern slavery, quote unquote, you know, like a modern slavery system. And so thinking about how children contribute to a more modern slavery system and even econ the economic system, it just goes to say, well, this is where, what, what about I transferred it over to America? Like, okay, so how do children, you know, in the 50s, 60s, uh, how did they contribute? How are they contributing now to the social economy and um, the, the, just the domestic, even labor wise, that economy, the entertainment economy here, you know, they're needed to uh, uh, fuel it. So I, I really thought that was interesting. Um, so, you know, we talked about your argument and how commercial trade grows um, under colonial rule. And with that, childhood labor uh, grows. Um, what uh, new labor practices did the children engage in? Right. Um, I, I'd first like to just make clear that the argument about domestic slavery rising as the transatlantic slave trade ending um, has been acknowledged and argued by other historians. 
you know, that isn't particularly new, right? But there, what's important is that those of us who are focusing on various kinds of child labor in West Africa, what is it unique, you know, what is unique about our intervention? Um, what exactly what you're asking, what kinds of labor now are they doing? What's at stake? You know, how are they mo more vulnerable, et cetera? Um, so with the increase of this export um, resource extraction that develops more intensely under colonialism, so too does the exacerbation of various forms of child labor. So we know that, that you know, West African children have worked in a, a variety of capacities, including various apprenticeships, right? They didn't, it didn't have to be a coercive labor type necessarily, maybe a dependent type of labor, you know, depending on the negotiation between the parents. Um, in agriculture, that was always needed, right? You, you speak to the um, kind of comparative nature of children's labor throughout the globe, and that's really important because that's not new. This happens everywhere throughout the globe, children are engaging in labor. Um, but then also you have, um, when, when col uh, colonial administrators and other types of European trading centers, groups, firms come in, children begin to be porters. They begin to be, they, they are long distance traders now, not just with Europeans, but with other um, Africans from place to place because that's the kind of labor that's needed. They begin to be sucked into various agricultural uh, ventures that have an increase due to um, the increase of the um, the more kind of large crop uh, production that's happening, right? So you you have plantation systems now rather than subsistence farm, farm, farming for individual families or, you know, smaller uh, societies um, who are only depending on themselves for what they eat, right? So with the globalization of um, these various types of food products, you have children increasingly being sucked into, like I said, those kinds of um, trading patterns. I think also what's really important to recognize is that because of the various colonial policies, you might think, well, maybe parents, you know, have a choice not to send their children out to work, but it was of, uh, it would cause great distress if they did not comply with the labor needs of the colonial entity, which were managed often through these warren chiefs that I talk about in the book, and we can get to that later. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, the, the, the type of labor and the intensity of the labor did change quite a bit. So you give us information and details about uh, a child that you found in the archives named Peter. Um, can you tell us um, how you found Peter in the archives and the difficulties, if any, about finding um, children's narratives in the archives? Yeah, you know, Peter's account was really interesting, and I feel so bad for Peter. <laughs> I feel so bad for Peter. Um, Peter's account was really interesting because it, it was the story of a particular child almost from the beginning of his um, episode to a, a more um, favorable outcome, which we don't often have. 
But this account was found in a slave trader's uh, personal writings. I believe it was Antara Duke. And he noted how, you know, it, it was an example of how the slave trade actually worked with regards to using pawns. Um, and Peter was, I believe, um, an uh, individual who was left with a trader at the shore while a slave, a slaving man, a slave trader went into the inland to collect slaves and bring them back. So goods were put on the ship, they were gonna exchange them for the slaves. Peter was supposed to wait for the individual to come and exchange him. Um, and he should have been uh, returned back to his father eventually. But while they were waiting for slaves to come to the shore, um, the slave trader decided to take Peter and leave with him. Um, eventually, I, I believe he finds one of his parents in Sierra Leone or something. But um, Pons had a very important yet temporal place in these economic exchanges that involved, that involved slaving. And what we see, the kind of breakdown of the relationship is something that we see in the actual pawning cases that are at the core of my book. Um, when people are not honoring the agreement and transaction of only temporarily holding these individuals. Yeah, it becomes more of a process that was happening in America's like lifetime <laughs> bondage. Yes. Um, so we were talking about children, which is, which is they're prominent in your book, of course. Uh, but the geography plays a role, like a, a, a huge role in like what's agriculturally going on and what types of uh, labor that children perform. Um, can you describe um, a couple of the ways that the environmental uh, regions of the Bifrin hinterland shape the societal systems of Western Africa? Sure, absolutely. So we have, um, areas where palm trees are really, really prominent in um, Nigeria, in southeastern Nigeria. And in those regions, you find an increase of trafficking of children for the purpose of working on palm oil farms. Um, but in the other ways in which children are utilized is exactly what you mentioned, dependent on geography. Are you living near rivers? Do you, are you a primarily uh, subsiding because you have access to fish and other types of um, food ways or foodstuffs that grow in a kind of more um, wet natural space like that? Or are you somewhere that's further away um, from waterways? Are you inland, closer to urban areas? Are you using children for petty trade? Are you traveling to, having children travel to the markets with their mothers? Um, or are they porters for um, items that are considered more hardware as opposed to food stuff? So are they tra traveling for um, days and days and days as opposed to, you know, days and days and days with a trading man as opposed to just a couple of hours to the local market with a mother or an aunt or something like that. Um, so in that kind of way, 
they are engaged in various forms of labor um, and are trafficked for that type of labor in some instances. And not all children who work are trafficked, right? But the right. Traf trafficked <clears throat> children are, is that what's, uh, is what is at the core of the book. Um, and then you have children whose, <laughs> whose occupation it is to engage in the trafficking of other children, right? So that right. is yet another way. And depending, you know, it, talking about geography, depending on um, the geography, it's like, how do, do they lead them to the nearest train station that will, you know, put them in contact with an adult? You know, so there, there's a number of ways in which geography can shape the nature of child labor and child trafficking. Yeah, I, I noticed like a, a little later on in the book, once the trains became a, a form of transportation, how that contributed to uh, child trafficking and even the participants in it uh, kind of ch changed along with the technology of um, trains, just change, something like trains. So, mm -hmm. um, and then I, I wanted to talk about the system. So, so we had a system of transatlantic slave and in, in your book is it, talking about the transition from that type of uh, economy. And so one of the systems that uh, outlasted it was the canoe house system. Um, can you explain this system and then how it relates to the native house uh, rule ordinance of 1901? Right. Um, I realized early on that this native house rule ordinance was essential for my, for me to understand what was actually happening on the ground so the canoe houses um, are big trading firms located on the coast um, the southern coast of nigeria especially in the southeast and they were basically big men who had acquired a lot of wealth a lot of slaves who also worked as traders and these slaves could also acquire wealth and slaves of their own, um, but also other kinds of dependents, the elderly, perhaps the infirm. Um, and in a lot of ways, they acted like benefactors and then children, uh, adults, parents would pawn their kids to these head of houses, these big trade men. Um, so that they could apprentice or work in these trading houses um, because the parents could no longer afford to house them or they wanted their child to learn a trade. So these, I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's quite a magnificent place in terms of uh, social stratification, types of skills that are being learned, um, the ability to transcend your station in a way um that we don't understand in the american slavery context right so uh, you know it's hard to argue that you, it's hard to use the word slave in this context because it doesn't quite always mean the same thing um but at any rate this ordinance of 1901 should have stated that um everybody's free because we are not going to house slaves in nigeria period right Right. So it actually um, allowed for some of these these um, trading heads to keep certain types of individuals in their houses. Right. The, someone wasn't allowed to leave 
if they were going to be a vagrant or poor or without a home or without support. If a child was under a certain age, they had to stay in the home, you know, for yet another number of years. Um, it was a slow process to decrease slavery in these trading houses. And it should, you know, I always want to say it's kind of curious, but it really isn't curious, right? Because at the end of the day, labor to produce and export many of these agricultural goods could only be done during these trading, done through these trading houses. Um, and the British colonial administration made sure that they provided the way for these canoe houses to do so for as long as possible. Right, that's the problem with, you know, all over the world with the transition from enslavement or slavery to, you know, post-emancipation or whatever the economy was, is these gradual, you know, laws that are coming up. Even New York had like, okay, if you're a certain age, you have to be an apprentice for so many years and then, you know, you're set free. Or even after uh, 1865 in, in America, you know, you have... Uh, laws in which you you need to have a job before you can leave and yeah. show proof that you have this job from to transition out of it. So it wasn't real, you know, real freedom, but you had to document why you should be free, right. you know, and and because the economy still needed to uh, run on certain types of labor that weren't necessarily wage um, labor. So, correct. Like I said, there's many uh, things here that just translate you know uh, and we're still looking for that answer was there like did slavery ever end <laughs> you know did it end and but we see these transitions and did it ever the transition ever become complete you know and so this is um, your book is like contributes to that notion um yeah uh so one of the ways that children can uh, contributed to the Nigerian region's social economy uh, during the 1920s was by literally being a pawn. Um, like a pawn, they were the smallest in size within society. However, as you charge, they contributed much, much more than scholars give them credit for. So uh, we've already answered some of the ways that uh, children contributed to the social economy, but like what roles did they play like as far as socially you know we know economically they were used as labor but socially what what roles did they play one of the things that i learned um that really positioned uh me to to write this history was listening to and reading about the ways in which children became pawns so when we think about a slave, we think about a slave as someone who is rightless, right? A person's with a person without rights. Um, and whomever owns that individual generally is described as someone who doesn't care about the slave, right? It's only what is extracted, whether it's reproductive or productive labor. Um, the difference about a pawn is that the pawn is loved and cared for and the reason why the pawn is important is because the family values that individual and a pawn can be a child or an adult um, it is precisely because the child is a value that gives the pawn intense wealth or intense value um, 
in the form of potential wealth. So the way pawning works in this era is a parent, let's say a parent had a death in the family, needs to bury a father or a mother, uh, brothers getting married, there's some kind of debt that's owed, seeds are needed for the next planting seed season, etc. They go to maybe uh, an elder, a big man, someone with titles in the local community um, that's known to have wealth. Um, this was generally the way to borrow funds. And the child would be lent out and his or her labor would pay the interest on the debt until the father or the parents paid the debt in, in whole. Um, it is only because that child was valued that this arrangement would work, right? Sometimes it would take two years, sometimes it would take less, sometimes it would take 10 years for the debt to be paid, but the child was always supposed to be returned. Um, so that is the significant social component of the child pawn. Um, and that's why it becomes so problematic when nefarious money lenders and child traffickers began to take the child in lieu of a loan or offering out a loan and then trafficking the child, right? Or selling the child. Right. There's an entire breakdown of what used to be an understood social agreement. Yep, I, I just know the social aspect of uh, pawning uh, is, is one of the major differences between like a pawn and a slave, just like you described, having rights, having someone who cares for you, having family in the background. It's like anticipating you coming home one day, you know, versus being, you know, even shipped overseas and never returning and people just forgetting or just not even forgetting, but just thinking there's no way, you know, just losing hope for return so um and and speaking of uh, of the child pawn and we, we know that adults could be pawned at this point but can you explain some of the uh gender differences between the pawning of a male child and female child again this is with the social aspect they're not just these uh genderless people or genderless entities they have differences in the way why they're pawned and you know and even value absolutely um, so boy children would be used in agricultural um, environments. They would be used to help um, construct homes or, like I mentioned before, perhaps in other um, port uh, porting or, or trade operations um, agriculturally, not just in a local uh, in their own local district, but maybe transferred a, a far ways off, but always with the intention to return home. Um, sometimes there would be a religious aspect, right? Somebody that's used in that way um, as, you know, that kind of apprentice, um, not just in, in physical labor. But girls were vulnerable and for a variety of reasons. Number one, the, the term of the loan, if it extended quite a bit and there was no foreseeable future that um, wherein the parent could repay the loan, then it would be transferred, let's say, you know, what we would call a, a bride price. And that loan um, 
would function as the bride price. And then the man who had the girl in his possession could either take the young girl as his wife, um, and perhaps she'd be older now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or he could function as a proxy and marry her to someone else and reclaim the funds uh, that would then be a new bride price, but as for paying off, you know, as a way to pay off the initial loan. Um, and that would be a legitimate way by which a child can go from a pawn to a child bride and eventually a wife. You could see the porosity between the various statuses. Um, the problem is that because these positionalities are so porous, they could slip very quickly into slavery. <laughs> if, in fact, the child was sold outright without the knowledge of the parent. Um, you know, I have a, several stories in my book about children being sold straight into slavery once they received children um, without any kind of further negotiation with the parents. You know, some money lenders began with the intent to sell children outright um, and sell many of them at, at a time. And you can tell that they know that their own dealings were illegitimate because they do it under the dark of night, right? They right. hide from authorities. Um, they would seek out what was needed before they would deliver the children, right? They, they, they were smart, they were business people. Um, and they're very intentional about how they investigated the need for children laborers, um, whether they be boys or girls, uh, where they should be trafficked, the way by which they should be trafficked, which could be land, water, train, bike, basket. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, what the children um, would do once they got to their end location. Um, So yeah, it was an entire network of various ways that um, both boys and girls were used, but girls were definitely more vulnerable. Um, And of course, something that's hard to really touch on in the book, because there's not a lot that speaks to it, was all of the kind of sexual abuse that must have happened for girls as well. and I didn't take that on fully because I didn't feel like I had enough information. But if we back up from that and just think about how children were treated generally as pawns, um, I learned from the individuals that so gracefully agreed to be interviewed that some children were treated just like slaves, some pawn children treated just like slaves. Um, in fact, some people saw some pawn children in particular regions, regions as slaves because, this, because of the uh, subordinate status. But others said, oh, absolutely not. They slept with my children. They ate with my children. I sent them to school. So I, I make an argument um, in the book that it really depended on the individual. Once the 20s and 30s and even the 40s come around, on whether or not the child will be treated well, um, because things are things are moving fast paced in terms of the economic status of the country. Children are becoming more and more vulnerable, and you know I've written since other things about you know children in the 40s, 50s, and 60s and how they move around, and it's a similar thing that, you know, I, I argue that the further away the child gets from um, 
a, a parent, um, it, it could be, and other scholars have noted this, it could be that children are treated worse, but I argue more strongly that the child's, the child's parents' relationships with the recipient of the child determines the treatment of the child more than anything else. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's important. Yeah, that crosses right into my studies with black homeschooling because of the relationship of the parent that the parents have with the schools, have with the teachers at the schools that come from totally different, quote unquote, villages or cities or towns or even counties in some uh, instances, as well as the busing situation. You know, in the 1950s, how children were removed from there cities or their just say villages you know or their homes and bust all the way out into uh, segregated neighborhoods mm -hmm. that were post desegregation but were still segregated so just the relationships and the social um downfall of that like removing children from their homes and it, it also happened with the indigenous people here of sending them off to boarding schools of course this was back uh before the 1950s um and, and even in canada um so the the whole um just the whole thought process and uh, of removing children the further and further away they get from their home and their parents of the treatment of the children be deteriorate so it, it's just you just take that framework and then line it up with children across the world and it's like yeah you might we might have something there so <laughs> yeah. um so going back to the economy you know in the 1920s america's economy is roaring as they say american women secured the right to vote in 1920 uh, the women's organizations in the u.s were uh, reforming child labor laws and by 1918 uh the school was mandatory for most children in the united states um, at the same time um European and American women were quite politically active internationally and they worked on child reform in Western Africa just like they were working at home they were bringing their values to Western Africa so what were some can you tell us in your book what were some of the international organizations that you uh, discuss that affected colonial policies toward child pawning and how did their uh, policies affect the culture of the ch of child pawning so the the main cohort were various committees within um the united nations made up of women um who were really concerned with yes child labor but it was heightened by um sex slavery uh trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation um, I'm sorry, I said United Nations, I meant League of Nations. League of Nations, yes, League of Nations. <laughs> um, I always have to catch myself. Um, <laughs> like, what year, what year was it? Um, and they came from a variety of Western countries, uh, as well as a few from um, Asia and Latin America, but mainly Western countries, Canada, and of course the US. Um, and they really wanted to know number one what were people doing with girls and girls labor how were how was the movement of girls enacted um was it child marriage was it slavery of course there's big concerns in india in china etc and and in a lot of other places um but they come to be concerned with 
pawning and ch uh, child marriage in particular. Now there's, there's that happening at the same time where, um, and you mentioned this, there's all of these child labor laws that are developing in the US and they're trying to say, and in Europe, Britain, you know, and they're trying to say, how can we kind of replicate these, these laws? Well, there's no way to do that unless you take the child out of the economic machinery of the colonial entity, right? So they had to, the, the real struggle was dealing with the British administrators mm. to investigate and to, um, try to stem the the traffic of children and the use of child labor and you know they're so forceful it's really interesting these women are really forceful in the sense that they demand to be heard they show up to meetings um, even if they're not invited they have letter writing campaigns and so you know the administrator is like okay 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 we'll do some investigations and they're writing letters and writing letters and to the district officers and the district officers are going around asking various chiefs and some people are like oh yeah absolutely we have pawning and child slavery and all these kinds of things um maybe not that openly but they're like <laughs> yeah we're, we're, some of this is happening and other people are like oh no we would never but yes it is happening and it's happening everywhere but at varying rates um and so they the 20s they come out with so you know some great information in terms of it, and of course, we can't take it all from face value. We have to read between the right. lines. We have to know that there's, you know, racism that's occurring. There's their own economic um, values that are being taken into consideration. You know, what's going to be made public and what they're going to write about uh, this topic privately between each other. Um, so there's a lot of kind of unpacking that historians um, and others who, who do this kind of work have to do, but essentially what's generated is um, a picture of the, of the child trafficking landscape, and it's pretty intense. And I admit in my book, I can't enumerate how many children were trafficked during this period. I have to go through debt records, I have to go through prison records, I have to understand the changing money lending laws to know that what the women are saying by the time the 1929 women's war hearings are had, they're arguing, we protested, yes, because of the economy, yes, because of the high export uh, prices and the low, or, or vice versa, the high import prices and the low export prices of our goods, um, and the abuses of the war chiefs, but part and parcel to all of that is the pawning of children and the loss of children through nefarious money lenders. So even while all of these agencies are trying to figure out um, in these committee members what's going on in the ground and the district officers are producing documents explaining what's happening, um, by the second major investigation in the 30s, which is more about child stealing and straight out trafficking than the earlier 20s pawning investigation, um, administrators are like, we give up. Yeah, we know it's happening, um, but there's nothing we can do about it. So now we want to just focus on the well-being of those slaves who have been freed, right? 
um, unfortunately, not much ever happened in terms of having a positive conclusion, a resolution to child labor. There was only that which could be important to the colonial administration, and that was still trying to recover um, from the, of course, still the end of the slave trade, which has now been, you know, several decades, but you're looking now into going into World War II and the kind of extractive labor that that also requires. So you could see the lead up to, even if we're kind of projecting now, how children continue to be employed in these kinds of labor spaces, right? Um, I think one of the most interesting comments about something that one of the British administrators wrote was like, we know that these women of the League of Nations are going to be really upset, but we're just, we, there's just nothing more to do. Um, and it goes to show you that that's what they were concerned about, in my opinion, not so much actually ending the practice of traffic, child trafficking. Right. It seems like uh, your you in your book you show the tremendous pressure that the League of Nations, the women from the League of Nations, put on, and that almost contributed to the breakdown of the indigenous systems that were going on with child pawning. So this is breakdown is happening in the 1920s and you know mid 1920s, where the indigenous system, which is well structured is breaking down and now the colonial system of this high taxation is taking over and the pressure that people have to pay these taxes to even do anything and the pressure that some of the men have to get married you know and, and needing that type of that's a, again a social aspect and then it just all starts <laughs> coming to a head and here you have women um that finally decide by the end of the decade of the 1920s to take a stance so you speak about the Igbo women's insurrection like the Haitian historians speak about the Haitian revolution the Europeans just it was too sophisticated it was unimaginable for uh, the Europeans so tell us about uh, the relationship of child trafficking to the women's insurrection of 1921 I mean excuse me 1929 yeah absolutely um so the way that they described the intense financial pressure during the late 1920s and let's remember it's the interwar period we're coming up on the great depression um, nigeria is right center in the middle of the global trade as it relates to palm oil you know we have um the industrial revolution and all the engagement uh or the development of machineries that need um palm oil um, to lubricate the, that machinery. So we have children um, who become important because of their ability to, as, like I said, they're, they're uh, individuals through which wealth can be transferred, right? right? So along with this economic downturn, you have the British who are already taxing men, you have women who are contributing to the payment of that taxation. They themselves are not being taxed just yet directly. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, this, this for Nigerianists, this well-known story where there's this school teacher who is working as an enumerator um, for the local chief has been instructed, you know, 
tell us how many of everything you have in your village. Um, so it's men, women, children, goats, any other kind of animal. And it's quite taboo to go into these Igba villages and start counting people's children, right? You're, you're tempting the gods, right? Right. Um, so you go in, um, or he goes in and, and this one woman is very upset that he's asking all of these questions and basically saying, isn't it enough, everything that we're already going through and now you want to tax women? Like last time you came and counted people, taxation upon men developed. So if you're counting me now and you're counting all my um, other animals and my children, now you're going to tax me and my children. And the women, this news spread very quick, quickly through the women and they decided to make their voices heard. Um, some of them dressed in uh, palm fronds, some of them, you know, covered their bodies with ash and clay, some of them got naked, they went in front of the chief's houses, they screamed and yelled and chanted. Um, and were, you know, Judith Van Allen argues that this was a traditional way for women to make their grievances heard. They had um, political weight prior to colonialism, they had social weight, they had gerontocracies but both men and women had a say in society and increasingly their position had diminished in these ways um and they were finished with this abuse you know you mentioned um the transformation of native systems to colonial systems one of which was a court system warrant chiefs were illegitimately appointed there were court court clerks um and other individuals who became literate that would abuse um, the, the local individuals who had to go to court for various reasons. They would be fined um, a lot of times for no good reason. They would uh, have to pay higher fees um, to get their voice heard if they wanted a child found. They would pay to find the child only for the chief or the um, someone who went out to look for the child to keep the child themselves. So in so many ways they were being abused. Um, and then on top of the fear of the women being taxed, they were, like I mentioned, already paying or helping to pay taxes on their husband's behalf. Of course, women are known for their trade ventures in Nigeria and their finances were kept separate from their husbands. So they had uh, many times the capital to help, even if limited. Um, and so the idea that they would be further indebted to a system that was not really affording them any beneficial um, rights or any other goods, they decided absolutely not. Money, first of all, child stillers are stealing children to make money. Money lenders are stealing children to make money. People are pawning children, never being able to um, redeem them because of lack of money or those reasons, like I just told you, people selling them off straight away. Um, and women had had it. They had had it. Uh, and so they gathered in the streets. They traveled from town to town, hundreds of miles sometimes. They you know, sacked local government buildings. Um, they were not violent in the way that they were assaulting individuals. However, there were Nigerian police forces that fired upon them, um, where hundreds of women died reportedly 
Um, and that's a very difficult thing to think about, right? You have women that are protesting these abuses by both governmental policies, but may, you know, in, in a large way by Nigerian men themselves. <clears throat> and they are literally shot down, right? And they're crying out in court, explaining that this was an issue of not having our children. And if you understand Nigerian society, which is much like a lot of other societies, but in West African society, you have the idea where children are your most valuable thing that you could have in your home, right? right. Um, they are your future. You have to have children to be respected as an adult. And many times you are not even considered, considered a mature man or even a man until you get married <laughs> and until you have children. So to have that taken away from you um, has a direct impact on how you fit in society and how um, you are seen as uh, whether or not you're a produ productive member of society. Um, so it had so many implications to lose children. Um, what does it mean to be a mother if you have no children? Right. Right. And it's it, 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 it again adds to your argument about the social aspect of the economy. And right here, right now, this is the, the women are uprising and thinking about children as a legacy, as like you said, the future, all of these things impacted. And so it, it was another one of your arguments kind of later on in the book where the historiography, like how does your book add to the women's what we know as to childhood history the economic history but this is one of the ways it adds to the historiography of the uh women's war scholarship but what other components that uh that may have been missing from that scholarship that your book adds to it yeah um first i'd like to say there's a lot of great work done on the women's right. war um from anthropo anthropologists, political scientists, of course, all of this started, um, I would argue, with Judith Van Allen's um, Sitting on a Man article mm -hmm. in the late 1960s. Um, and she was a, a graduate student at Berkeley in political science, and she just was using secondary resources in the basement of um, the Berkeley, a Berkeley library. And then from there, other people started to engage with her and they would argue against her um, or aside her. There's dance historians that have engaged. Um, other Nigerian historians, of course, as you know, the 80s and the 90s have gone on and some are prioritizing different elements. Um, and one or two have spoken to this issue of well, ponds may have been uh, an issue, you know, child ponds. Um, everybody knows that it's an economic issue. It is a decrease of political and social power for women uh, as it relates to the economy. Um, but I'm the only one who has centered an entire book around the importance of evaluating a child's position in society right the social economy of a child in a way to understand why the women were protesting um, i in no way suggest that pawning is the only reason it's part and parcel to these other economic factors right uh, 
And we just need to look more closely at children's histories to understand these larger histories. Right, because again, if the children are the future, how they're being economically positioned in childhood goes right into the future. And what they know is their truth, you know? So it even has to deal with the replication of childhood trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, so one of the amazing parts that I loved about this book was the way you deploy oral history and how you presented it. Um, Tell us about the 1993 book, I Saw, the Sky Catch Fire and its significance to the historiography on the 1929 Women's War. Yeah, um, Dr. Obi, he agreed to meet me in a, a small Pennsylvania library for this interview. Um, and one of my dissertation advisors, Dr. Tema Kaplan, suggested that I read the book. I hadn't heard of the book. Um, so I read it and it was the most amazing read, right? Um, and it's not an exact replica of the 1929 war, but it does, it is speaking of this moment where women are uprising and there's frustration in society or whatnot. So I wanted to know from a personal perspective, you know, why did he write this book? What's, you know, obviously he's, I shouldn't say obviously, he's from Southeastern Nigeria. Um, so I asked him what's going on. He explained that his grandmother lived, I believe about, I, my memory could be off, but maybe about uh, 30 miles or so um, from the initial site of the, the war where it began. Um, and that she grew up with all of the aftermath of the war. And he was explaining that it was such a significant thing in Igbo society that everything would be described in relation to the war. So, <laughs> you know, my uncle was born seven years after the war and they said the war and they meant the women's war. Wow. Right? Um, so immediately I understood that this was a moment where people began to um, describe themselves, their lives, their children's lives in relation to. Um, so it was important and, and it gives credence to the women's movement, right? It's not right. A, a factor by which time is explained. It's saying the women's effort here was so significant um, that it may as well be another calendar, right? Um, <laughs> so, but then he, he explains that, um, like we're talking about the importance of the war and what it means. And of course, here I am, you know, I'm an Afro-Latina woman asking him questions about the war. Um, and I present other arguments in my book about the historiography and how other people have made it, uh, you know, engaged in feminist theories or has presented it as a feminist movement. But I try to be careful about not pushing that too much because that's actually not my aim. You can have a woman woman's movement and they themselves not describe it as a feminist movement right so right i try not to anachronistically go back and, and do that however i do present the, him with the question because there are so many other scholars that um feminist theories that, that do do this um and he's so emphatic about his response um and he's 
it's almost as if he believes or he believed that by stating that this was a mere feminist uprising or feminist you know uh event it was almost as if scholars were diminishing the importance of the war um, and yes, he said this was not some theoretical event. This was an actual war. And I forget the exact line, but it was something to the extent that it was like the earth roared or the earth erupted. Like this was not uh, a small scale event. Um, but that yes, the women in all the ways that an individual could go to war, they went to war. Um, it was about life or death in his eyes. Um, and I think that for those who are interested in, um, I won't say too much about it now, but he, he, he offers this conversation that he has with his daughters about it. And he invokes the vagina monologues. And, and it's something that you just don't expect. I, I, I implore people, please at least go read this chapter. <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it was by far just a very informative chapter about, you know, transnational women's rights, transnational feminism, if it even falls into that category. It's argued, it, it, it can be argued that it is or that it isn't, but I just love the way he was adamant about, you know, saying this was war. It's not an intellectual debate. We're not just sitting here chit-chatting back and forth yeah. about, you know, women's rights because they had their rights before uh, colonialism. They had th their cultural status. And so um, this might not necessarily just been talk. They yeah. walk the walk as well. Absolutely. So I, I really enjoyed that part. Um, so towards the end of the book, you kind of outline how family members as well as women and children were involved in a quote, pervasive child dealing practices. Mm -hmm. um, here you uh, recount the story of uh, a family member who stole his step five year old stepsister. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that story? What happened? Because it was a good example, I felt that just showed how by this time, like you said, that over time, that pressure increased and now look what's happening even within the family unit. So can you tell us about family members and even women and children involved in the these practices? Sure, um, so in this specific case uh, is uh, a young man by the name of Wogu. He steals his stepsister um, and is engaged in a multiple person child trafficking ring where um, he's trying to get money from her. And so one of the things that I do is like, why is he trying to still, it's most, I mean, is he trying to get married? Is he trying to, you know, deposit funds to um, invest in a trading? You know, I'm always wondering why the young men are, are, are doing this, just to give you background, why it's important to note um, that it's a young man who's, who's kidnapped his sister. Um, but the other component of this is the number of people who are engaged in trafficking one child right he you know he goes and meets a friend and then they go and try to transfer the the girl to yet a third party 
which by the way, Wogu ends up getting killed in the transaction. And I argue that it's likely that his friends or his accomplices wants more of the funds received mm -hmm. the child. Um, so that's, you know, there's danger in this, uh, in these child trafficking schemes, like real physical danger. Um, but the other kind of danger that exists is the lack of the ability to prosecute family, member, family members when they are found out to be trafficking their um, younger nieces or sisters or stepsisters. Because in the colonial court system, what ends up happening is they get charged um, not for child trafficking, but I, I, I think it was like stealing or something much less nefarious, um, which is really problematic for the young girls, right? Because mm -hmm. um, there's almost no there's there's no incentive for these young men to stop selling their um what would be subordinates in their family <clears throat> um uh there was other ways in which um family members would engage uh in child trafficking and that would be even one parent pawning or or selling their child without the other parent know, knowing, right? Um, and sometime if a wife found out that the husband did that, she would demand that that husband go back and, and get the child. But he would have arranged a, an exchange where he wouldn't know where the child ended up, so he wouldn't have to pay back the money. And that becomes much more problematic when family members are involved. Um, when you lose the child forever. I also thought it was interesting of some of the case studies that you did where like women smuggled children on trains and would like act like it was their child when asked, you know, just, just, and, and again, this is happening, you know, in the late, latter stages of your book you know where it's in, we might be in the 30s mm -hmm. late 30s and so it just speaks to how desperate the situation got and how it was just the, the the structure of the local economy had just totally broken down and became a colonial one and when the when things they say all the time when something becomes illegal the black market opens right up and starts flowing and and it looks like what you're presenting here is kind of what what ends up happening absolutely absolutely and so just moving forward um what are you currently working on um because we know this is just the beginning <laughs> um what the, this book was great uh i enjoyed it i know our listeners have enjoyed it or will enjoy it um but what are you currently working on now well i have three projects wow <laughs> um we i i am um i i've said we because myself and two other colleagues are working on an edited volume which will come out next spring called when will the joy come black women uh in the ivory tower and that's with the university of massachusetts press I am working on a human trafficking textbook for undergraduates um, with Rutledge, and it'll be a couple years before that comes out. But the next monograph um, that I'm working on has to do with the 1960s and the migration 
and trafficking that happens between southern Nigeria and the then colony of Fernando Po, which was a Spanish colony. Um, I mention in my book a case where there was a man using the same passport to traffic multiple Nigerian children from Nigeria to Fernando Po. Well, since I, you know, completed the research for the book, I have found so many more instances where both women and men were trafficking children to Fernando Po. Mm. Um, so I'm not just looking at children in my second monograph, but I'm also going to be looking at women who tra traveled as wives to migrant for mi migrant laborers there or to um, join migrant laborers in Fernando Po. Um, they worked as traders, they worked as prostitutes, some were forced to work as prostitutes, um, same as some of the young girls. Some young girls are first forced into domestic uh, work for um, the Spanish colonial authorities there. So it's a broader book uh, on women and children, um, but it's looking at this kind of cyclical trade that's happening between um, Nigeria and Fernando Po and hopefully some parts of um, Guinea. I'll have to see how that works out. Um, but those are the three main things that I'm working on right now. Always multi-working. Uh, it sounds fascinating, especially the the one that your monograph because just dealing with labor during showing over time with colonial uh, policies, how it impacted people's movements and people, what they did for a living, uh, humans, children, women, and, and all. So um, it has really been my pleasure to present your book um, and have you explain in detail what some of the things that you discussed within it. And um, I thank you for uh, presenting it to our audience. Thank you so much, Stacy. I appreciate your time and thank you to the listeners. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.